Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we come before you thanking you that you are the King of the ages, that you are the eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray that as we look at our lesson this evening, this doctrinal class may be an encouragement, not just to those here, but those who have been listening online as well. Thank you for this morning. We thank you for our brother Jeff being able to be with us this evening. And we pray again that you would give him strength and that your will would be done in regards to his, uh, uh, in regards to his schedule. I pray, Lord, that with all that is taking place in the world, that uh, you would help us to remember that we should not be as those who have no hope. And, and uh, even when things go uh, pear-shaped uh, politically or in any other way, you're still in control, and you give us grace and strength to go through each day. As your word reminds us that we are to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So help us to cast our cares upon you this evening and rejoice in the God of our salvation. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, First Timothy chapter 1, and we are going to begin reading at verse 12 and read down through verse 17. Paul is writing to young Timothy here, and he says, I thank him, speaking of Jesus Christ, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to go through this section that we overlooked this last time. I believe it was providential. It certainly wasn't intended uh, on my part to do that. But I want us to consider um, the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as king. You see, there are a lot of places that you may go and that you would study under as far as doctrinally and there are going to be people who are um, uh, there are people who are willing to give the Lord Jesus Christ his due but only up to a certain point there are going to be those who are willing maybe to proclaim him as savior of mankind but they don't want to make him Lord and the truth is that we don't make God anything God is God, God is Lord, God is sovereign over all of his creation, and there's nothing that you can do or say that will make him God. There's nothing that you can say that will make him the king. He is as much supreme and as much sovereign as he will ever be. I've used similar illustrations before, but when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, I mean, she ruled, uh, she was actually... Uh, a queen, she came to the throne when my mom was about five or six years old. And it was the only queen that most British people that we'd ever known. 
And so it was a big blow when, of course, Her Majesty, as comes time for all people to pass away, um, she also passed away. And then, of course, her son immediately becomes king. But not once in her 70 years of reign did my mom ever get a call from Her Majesty saying, well, would you have a problem if I do this in the kingdom? <laughs> you know, strangely, she didn't even call me. And, and she just ruled without even knowing that I was one of her subjects. And the reality is even more so with the Lord Jesus Christ because he rules supreme, supreme and yet as we mentioned this morning, the truth is that he does have a personal relationship with us. He knows us intimately. And I am thankful that we can look to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I have shared this, it's been probably quite some time, but in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, he actually had, uh, do you remember in the Old Testament where there were kings that sat at the table in Babylon, if you've read the account of exile, um, and there were several of the kings, and, and one of the kings, I believe it was Jehoiakim, uh, who was actually elevated above all the other kings who sat at the table, uh, and he takes care of them and provides for them, Nebuchadnezzar does. Well, that was kind of what happened. You see, you would hold a king in subjection. You would hold him in your palace. He would live with you if you subjugated him and his people. He would still be allowed to be king over his people, but he had to rule from the palace of the enemy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar actually styled himself in writings that have been found recently within the last century that he styled himself as the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. So when we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually would say that Jesus Christ is King of King of Kings and Lord of Lord of Lords. And go back to the verse with me again. Again, we're not, we're not parsing out this, this entire passage. I just wanted to read because this is actually one parenthetical expression here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verses 12 through 17. But I want to focus on the one verse down at the end. And again, it says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, I believe the authorized version says, to the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we get to the New Testament, every book of the Bible, there is a common thread that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go and you will find a type or an anti-type of the Lord Jesus Christ in every single book. Even in the ones that do not mention, or the one that does not mention, does anybody remember what that book is? What is the one book that does not even mention the name God? Esther. Esther. And yet, what do you see in the book of Esther? You see the providence of God. You see the sovereignty of God in action in that entire book, how God preserves and, 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 and sets his people apart and puts somebody in place. And it, it, it's like, uh, and, and again, we're not getting into any kind of politics here, but if you know there, there was some news that took place earlier today in the political realm, um, I, I can't say that I'm surprised, but in some ways, even if we are surprised or we're not surprised, God is not. God knows what was going to take place. He knows what was going to happen. So, in the broad theme of Scripture, in question number one, this is going to be the prolegomena, pages 42 to 50, in your notes. 
we want to give some examples of this broad theme. And the broad theme is king or kingdom. Now, if you'll remember, I just recently, I was listening to it this morning, in fact, in my reading, and I am just about finished with Second Chronicles now. And, and it, even if you don't like history, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles are not easy books to read. Anymore, well, I mean, when you get to the genealogies, it's like, oh my goodness, Buzz and Luz and, and, and all of these long names. I mean, why couldn't they have had easy names like Jeff or Mark or Bill, you know, Ryan, Mike? That would have been a whole lot easier. But when you read through these, when, when, when I came to the point in my own reading where I wasn't reading them just for the purposes of getting through the Bible, again for another year and I was actually reading them to hear what is it that God is what what is God actually saying here about himself in this passage and so one of the passages that I read this morning was about Queen Athaliah and yet God reveals in his word and he says that in in that passage God said that he would have a man he would have a king on the throne and so when Athaliah, when, when Josiah, the, the, the priest, actually brings Josiah out and he actually makes him the king of all of the land, it is a fulfillment of a promise that God had already set in motion. And yet, what does Queen Athaliah say? Treason, treason. And yet, God is the one that had everything under control. And so the kingdom that he sets up, we find, for example, in the Old Testament, we've been going through this in the book of Hebrews, and in, in Hebrews chapter 6 and 7, we read of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek was the king of Salem, or the king of righteousness. And so right from the very beginning, you find these kings that are established, and, and you find this rule, but it is interesting that no king was ever both a priest, a prophet, and a king. That is a title and a position that only belongs to Jesus Christ. There were some kings who were both kings and prophets. There were some who tried to serve as king and priest. Do you remember Uzziah? What did Uzziah do? Uzziah is given everything by God. And yet at the very end he goes into the temple because he didn't want to wait for the priests. He didn't want to do it God's way. And the priests even come up to him and they stand against him. The, the, the high priest and 80 of, of the priests stand alongside him and they say, King Uzziah, it is not for kings to offer sacrifice. Saul did that too. And Saul did that. Uh -huh. What happened with Uzziah though? It says, as they stood there, the leprosy rose up in his head. That would be pretty scary. <clears throat> What happened with King Saul? King Saul, he's waiting. He's been given the kingdom. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's, he's, if you want to know what the Benjaminites, the Benjaminites were like, go and read Judges chapter 19 through chapter 21. It is a horrible account of what the Benjaminites were like. Debased, debauched, vulgar in every way. They were almost wiped off from the face of the earth. And yet, just a very few short years later, we find that King Saul is actually, or Saul is actually brought on as the king. And so two years later, he goes out. He decides, of course, that's before the whole 
Amalekite thing and he decides that he's going to try to be the priest as well. It wasn't enough that he was given the kingdom. And Saul offers a sacrifice and what does Samuel do? He shows up and he tells him, he says, you stepped out of bounds. You did something that you had no right to do. And the Bible says that Saul's kingdom was taken away from him and given him or given to his close neighbor, which of course, as we know, was David. With the exception of Leviticus, Ruth, and Joel, all Old Testament books explicitly mention the theme of king and kingdom. And except for Philippians, Titus, Philemon, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, it is mentioned in every New Testament book. That's 86% of the Bible has the theme king or kingdom in it. The Hebrew words for king and kingdom or reign or throne, listen to this, I don't, I don't think I had it there, but it was, I think this was in your notes, some of my notes that I get from other places as well. But the Hebrew words for king, kingdom, reign, or throne it is mentioned over 3,000 times in the Old Testament alone. And over 160 times in the New Testament. So what are the king titles that are given to Jesus Christ in the New Testament? You would have found this on page 43 of your book. First was king of Israel. Every one of these names or titles that are given are a reflection of a promise that God has made. You see, regardless of whether man is faithful or not, God always is. God is a God of promise. And God promised David that he would always have a son to sit forever on the kingdom of his throne. And, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, once he went to the cross, died and rose again, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ actually returned to heaven, and there he sat down at the right hand of God. He sits enthroned in majesty as we find from the hymn writer. So the king titles, number one, he is the king of Israel. Now, regardless of what your eschatology is, I believe that we find in throughout the Old Testament, in Isaiah, I believe it starts in Isaiah chapter 63 or 64, the book of Jeremiah, the last three or four chapters, and Ezekiel all point to a future period of time in which the Lord Jesus Christ will actually reign on this earth, and it says that David, his servant, will reign over Israel. Now, how all of that's going to happen, or why, or whatever, I, I don't believe that's something that we're debating at this point. We're going to look a lot at a lot of that when we get to eschatology, probably in about 15 years. But we are going to get to that. But it's important to know this. Jesus Christ, when he came here, do you remember what happened on Passion Week? Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem, and he comes in riding on a colt that had never been ridden. And what did the people say to him? They put their palm branches down and their clothes down on the ground in front of them. And what happened? Hail, King of the Jews. You see, because what they were expecting was a physical kingdom in which he was going to overrule the Romans. But Jesus didn't come for that purpose. He came for the purpose of defeating sin, which is a greater kingdom or a greater enemy than what Rome ever would be. Rome, Rome ended and went into decline around AD 476, never to be heard from again. 
except for in the pages of history. The Lord Jesus Christ, His reign is supreme. And, and when you look at the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you find that, that all down through church history, right from the very beginning in the first century, there have always been groups of people. They may have been small. They may not have their pages recorded in history, but there have always been groups of people who have gathered together as the bride of Christ for the purposes of worshiping the King. One of my favorite hymns we sang, I believe it was a couple of Sundays ago, or I mentioned and I read the hymn story last week, um, Oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing His wonderful love. So the King of Israel, He is also the King of the Jews. When, if you want to know, and I'm going to give you a reference here, but if you want to know who this King is, I would recommend you, your family, you and your spouse, Read Revelation chapter 1. You see, Revelation is not, a, uh, is, is, is not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And every passage that you read in all 22 chapters, you will find Christ overcoming. He is overcoming, overcoming, overcoming. And in the end, he will even overcome all obstacles when it comes to pain and death and crying, as we mentioned this morning, when he will be, give us great comfort for all of eternity. But I'd recommend reading Revelation chapter 1 at some point and see not just the titles, but the, 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 the description of what is given. And then, then go and read Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, here is a prophet who is a prophet of the Most High God. And, and in the first book there, he is, he is trying to describe this vision that he is having of heaven, of, of what it must be like. And he just doesn't even have the right words for it. I mean, he's like, you know, it was like this, and, and, and it was like this, and it wasn't really this, but it was kind of like this, and, and it looks like this, but it's not actually that. And you can almost see him struggling and, and maybe him pausing with, with, his, with his quill as he's writing on the parchment, trying to describe what, it, what he's trying to describe, which is actually indescribable. Because, as Paul said, no mere man, no mere mortal can actually describe what we are actually going to see and experience when we get to heaven. It is just amazing. I think one of the closest books outside of the scriptures that I, that I have ever read on heaven is Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. If you have not read that book, I would highly recommend getting that. I think we've got a couple of copies. You're welcome to borrow one. Um, but at any rate, that's a great book to encourage your heart when it comes to what heaven is going to be like. So he is the king of kings, see. He is, as we read here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible. When we worship him, we worship him in spirit and in truth. We do not worship a God that is made with hands. This is why the second commandment is, is, was so vital to the Old Testament Israelites. Because God made it clear. He said, the very best that you could do it is not going to be enough to be able to reflect who I am and worship me. And yet, even God himself had to give the plans to, I can't remember what his name was, uh, in the Old Testament where he was given the, the plans in his mind even to shape the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, this is the holiest of holies, and only one person could ever see it after it was done. 
And, 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 and in all of Israel's history until the Ark of the Covenant disappeared, and by the way, Indiana Jones still hasn't found it, all right? But in, in all of this that we find from, uh, from, from the Old Testament, there's only a handful, maybe a hundred people who ever got to see the Ark of the Covenant. And yet even that in all of its glory does not reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened with Moses? Moses goes up onto the mount for 40, for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens when he comes back? Yep, yeah, but what happened with his face? They couldn't even look at him. He had to actually put a veil over his face because it was so, it was so overpowering. The people said, cover your face because we're afraid that God will kill us. That's just the glory of God. Can you imagine what it would be like to actually be in his presence? Think about this. I want you to be very careful. How many of you would like to actually be in the presence of the Almighty, Most High Creator God of heaven and earth? Anybody? Huh? Someday, not in this body. Yeah, but in this body. (laughs) I don't know. Well, that was actually, it was actually a trick question because that God is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. He will be forever with us. And you know the wonder, we talked about it this morning, we were talking about sin and, and, and how we are to be comforted. Can you imagine that the God of all creation not only loved you with an eternal love, but gave his Holy Spirit as a down payment? Anybody here ever bought a home? I mean, you buy a home, you, you go in today, you can put down $500 as a deposit against a home that's three or $400,000. And they'll hold it for you for 45 or 60 days until everything comes together. But it's a down payment against what you will pay. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ gave of himself, gave of God, very God, in the form of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as a down payment. Can you imagine if we've got part of the Godhood within us as the Holy Spirit, can you imagine how much better heaven is going to be when we get to be in the presence of the entire triune God? I mean, that's just amazing to me. And he is the king of the nations. Somebody sent me some... Hannah? Do you mind getting me some more tea, please? If there's some, if not, just some cold water. Somebody sent me some information that um, just today, uh, in regards to the situation with some of our enemy nations and some things that they are concerned are going to take place. And. Um, as as and there was only so much that this person would have or would be able to reveal, um, and I thought and I sent sent a note back to them and I said, you know, God is still in control. No matter what happens, it doesn't matter if we're overrun. It doesn't matter if we're if if an enemy nation is allowed to wax eloquent on America, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and there's nothing in the Bible that even says that. The United States will even be around in the form that it is now when it comes to end times. Does that mean that we despair? Does that mean that we struggle because, oh no, what happens if this, what happens if that? Friends, you and I cannot live in the what-if land. 
because all it will do is bring us to despair. We have to trust that God uses these things to accomplish his purposes. And what if through these purposes, whatever they may be, it is for the sole purpose. It doesn't say that the world is going to get better. It says that he is going to come back for a bride who has made herself ready. And if that's the only purpose that God has to bring America to its knees, is to bring us as a church to the point where we are a pure church, then bring it on. And he will give us the strength to go through it on that day. Number three, the idea of God's kingdom encompasses every stage of biblical revelation. And we'll be looking at some of these as we go through various points of doctrine. But God is the king of eternity. It starts with him. It ends with him. Before time began, after time ends, he will still be king. God is the God of creation or the king of creation. We find right from the very beginning, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God did what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all of the things that he did, and he set his mark upon them, and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he creates the pinnacle of his creation, which is mankind. We, we do not evolve from a lower form of species or animal species. No, we are a separate individual with, that has been given. We are the only species in the entire world that is given a conscience with the ability to be able to worship the Most High God. You know, the reason why Satan fell was because of pride, but I believe that we can show, and we have looked at this in, in other classes, uh, I believe that the reason that Satan falls and that we see the pride in where it actually takes place is because he saw a creature, mankind, frail human creature, Adam and Eve, who every evening are worshiping God. They are fellowshipping with him and talking with him in the cool of the evening, and Satan gets jealous. And Satan says, I'm a greater created being than man. I want man's worship. And so he comes down and he questions God. He says, did God really say that? Yes, that's exactly what God said. He is the king of history. You know, for, for all of, well, for the last probably 150 years now, there has been great question. There are many scholars who did not doubt that there was some divine providence that has been at work down through creation. And it's only approximately the last 150 years after um, an ordained minister got off a ship that went around the world, including to the Galapagos Islands, and his name was Charles Darwin, came back and wrote Origin of the Species. And instead of trusting that God is the God of promise and that he is the God who establishes all things in the world, the church capitulated. And the church decided, and pastors decided, and seminaries and Bible colleges decided, well, we can't argue with science, so we are going to actually compromise. And in that compromise, we actually have something. You have two main forms. You have evolutionary worldview, which of course is man's view, worldly view, and then you have creation. And this of course is God's view. When Charles Darwin came back, Charles Darwin, his work 
actually upset the churches and they said, well, we can't, we can't figure out how these two come together. So what they did was they took evolution, which was presented by Charles Darwin, and they took creation and they put it together and they came up with something that has been now termed as theistic evolution. And what they said was, we'll take the part that we like here, and that is the parts that evolution can't explain, and that is the building blocks. And God put all of these in place, but then he allowed millions and millions and millions of years to be able to pass so that all of these things could come to pass. And actually, we did come from a primordial soup or ooze and eventually became a primate, dropped our tail, and one day began to walk upright. Somehow developed speech. And now we have mankind as we are today. You know, and I challenge you to look at this, but the Earth's history and the time frame of what the world looks like was not millions and millions of years. That's only, that has only come about in the last probably 140 years of Earth's history. It, what, there was a time that all well-known, respected scientists actually believed in a young Earth theory until this came along. Just something to consider for later. God is the king of redemption. God is the one that sets the standard. He sets the rules for what and how we are to be redeemed. He is the one who said, I will lay aside my glory. I will send my son the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ set aside his glory, came down to this earth to be the propitiation, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, for the sins of mankind. God alone is the one who could establish. Man was the one that broke the rules. God is the only one that could change or that could make the rules or to make things possible so that mankind could be restored in fellowship. God is king of earth, and he is the king of heaven. I am thankful that he is not just ruler over one. We find the Lord Jesus Christ himself verifying this in Matthew chapter 6 when he gives the model prayer, and he says, your kingdom come, when we pray, your kingdom come. For those of us who are believers, we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God in heaven will be established on earth in its totality. The Bible makes it very clear that one day every knee will bow. Philippians chapter 2. What are the major motives of scripture? Question number four. First we find the revelation of the character of God. And again because we're going to go through some of this, quite a bit of this actually, when we get to theology proper, which is the study of God the Father, we're not going to spend a great deal of time on it here in the Prolegomena. But the major motif of Scripture is the revelation of the character of God. I'm going to give you a recommendation for a book um, that, that I would encourage you to, you can actually find it, I believe, online. Uh, and anytime I recommend a book to you, um, you can find most of these on a place called half, H-A-L-F dot com or eBay dot com. If you're looking to add to your library books that are well worth reading, this would be one of them. And it is the character of God. There are two versions of this. One is by A.W. Tozer 
and the other one is uh, by A.W. Pink. Um, and uh, the, the character of God, the attributes of God, these are all great books, and, and they're divided up in such a way that, that, that you could actually read one, cha- one chapter a day. Uh, I think the one by Pink is only, what, like three pages for each one of them, something like that. And uh, it is definitely worth reading. It is a great devotional. And you will come out the other side of that with a great, greater appreciation for our God. Number two, the revelation of the divine judgment for sin and disobedience. I mentioned it this morning. We talk about wanting revival. For us to have revival or for any church to have revival, we have to see sin the way God sees sin. And, and, and too often we get, we get caught up in the niceties of life. We, we, want to, we, we think that Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people is like somewhere between the Old and New Testaments of the Scriptures. And it's not. There's a reason why we are called to take a hard line on sin, not just our own, but on the sins of others. And that is because God gave His Son for that sin. And if God saw it seriously enough that He was willing to be separated and to go through that blackness of that separation where by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself on the cross would have to pray, we read in the book of Luke, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a direct quote out of the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. And it was a prophetic utterance that was given. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as he is hanging on the cross, for him to be willing to come. And, and, and I can remember when we were in Liberia and talking with, with one of the men there. And it's, it's in the little book that, that I wrote some years back now. And, and Paul Zawolu, who, who wanted to think that he could play games with God. And as long as he kept 50% of the rules that God gave he could break the other 50 and somehow God would find it in his mercy and grace to to actually allow him in heaven. God doesn't work that way. God says there's one standard and the standard is perfect holiness. The standard is be holy for I am holy. And if you are not holy and I am not holy, that means that somebody has to stand in the gap for us. Somebody has to pay the legal account, the debt that we have incurred And that person was Jesus Christ. And when he paid the debt, he zeroes that out. That is what justification means, as we will look at when we get both to the doctrine of salvation as well as to the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. That legal account that says, I have taken your debt and I have paid it in full. It's not just as if you have never sinned. It's much more than that. It is just as if you have never sinned But the sin that you did do, and even your very nature, I have zeroed that out so that when my Father looks at you, He sees me. He sees Jesus Christ. Thirdly, along with that divine judgment for sin and disobedience is the divine blessing for faith and obedience. Now I want to say this because there may be some who listen to the message from this morning and there may be some questions that you may have and that's fine. And maybe there are some things that you heard this morning that maybe you've never heard in a church before. And I challenge you to look through the scriptures because it is important that we do what the scripture tells us to do. 
But one of the things that is important for me to remember and for you to remember is because there is divine judgment for sin and disobedience, that does not mean that we hate people. We are not given the right to hate people. We are called to love them with all of our heart. We are called to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and he calls us to love others, including our enemies. You know, we showed a picture this morning on the slides in the missions moment of Kim Jong-un. And it was interesting looking at the faces across the auditorium as we showed that picture. And there were, there was a range of emotions that I saw in the auditorium. A God that loved us as his enemy enough that he was willing to redeem us is the same God that can bring salvation to a man like Kim Jong-un. We have a responsibility to pray for that man. To pray for all leaders around the world. I've shared with you before what happened when 9-11 took place. Oh man, everybody was up in arms and everybody wanted to you know, make uh, little sandcastles out of big sandcastles over there in the desert. And I remember preaching on the very first Sunday after 9-11. I remember asking the folks, how many of you have actually prayed for the people who live in those countries? You know, there are a lot of people, they're not all the enemy. Most of them will never pick up a weapon. They'll never pick up a gun. <coughs> because wars are fought with small numbers of people compared to the population because big people with big heads in the government don't have enough <coughs> And they always want more. And yet, the Bible says that there will be some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who will be worshiping around the throne. Should we not be praying for that? Should we not be praying for the salvation of others? I'm not saying that we don't have an enemy. I'm not saying that we should just stand down and allow our military to just roll over. No, I don't mean that. I believe God brings divine wrath and judgment upon nations. But we are called to worship him, to acknowledge him as God. And that includes in praying for the salvation of others. And because of that, we have the divine blessing for faith and obedience. God's word is very simple. Some people like to make it, yes, we've got a big book, it's over a thousand pages there. That's, that's just defining what we already read on the pages of scripture. The Bible says, obey me, follow me, obey my commandments, love my commandments, love me. And then when we don't do that, because God knows that we won't do that, he gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments and then another 603 commandments besides that, knowing full well that they were going to break every single one of them at some point. And so what did God do? God made it possible for a scapegoat. He made it possible for the sins of the people to be covered until the Lord Jesus Christ came when he actually atoned in himself for sin. The revelation of the Lord, Savior, and His sacrifice for sin. This is what we've been talking about. When we partake of the Lord's table, and, and Lord willing, we'll do this this next Sunday night. Uh, to, to me, it is, it is a time of great rejoicing that, that we can actually not just do what we did to the very Son of God, but that He gave us a way to remember the fact that He has forgiven us. The Lord's table isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. 
It's about the fact that he gave his life. He was the sacrifice. He stood in the gap when you and I couldn't. And one day we will find the revelation of the kingdom and glory of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's going to be a wonderful day. Well, what's, what's that hymn? Um, uh, the one that speaks about one day when, when, when we will all stand before him, when, when his glory we shall see, we shall look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. That's the summation. You, you see all the problems, you see all the, the gray hair and the pain and the turmoil and the struggle and everything that we go through in this life. Just remember, this, this will be gone in the blink of an eye. I've asked at different, another class, I believe, I, I asked one time how far back you can remember. I can remember clearly events that took place when I, before I was in, in grade school, before I went to kindergarten. I mean, events that I can see like they happened yesterday. Here we are, brother, we're over half a century later. And yet in the light of eternity, what is that? Isn't going to be anything. We sing the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, when we've been there 10,000 years. We can't even imagine 100 years. But after we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And you know the difference is? The moment we cross over into eternity, nobody's keeping time anymore. Yay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> into what five categories is the history of the Old Testament divided? This was found on page 45. This is a great way to be able to remember uh, the Old Testament divisions. Number one, Genesis through Deuteronomy. This is the law. This is also known as the Torah. Torah is spelled like this, T-O-R-A-H. And it simply means, in the law, in the Hebrew, it means the law of God. We then find, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The next 12 books are the books of history. They're the ones that a lot of people like to avoid because it's like, oh, eyes roll back in the back of your head. And it's like, oh man, we've got to read more history. There is a lot of wonderful, wonderful accounts of what God does. Um, I mean, if, if, if we were to get started, I mean, we could be here forever just talking about times when, when the people of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, the king of, of Judah, uh, was concerned. And uh, as one example, and the, and the Bible says, don't worry about the enemy. You just go there, show up in the morning, and uh, <clears throat> he says, see the salvation of the Lord. And they get there the next morning and all of the enemies of the, pe of the people of, of Judah are actually fighting themselves and killing each other. Uh, what about the time when, when Gideon stands on top of, uh, of the mountains and he's got 300 people because <coughs> 31,700 of them were cowards and went home or drank water incorrectly and they're standing on top with no swords, with nothing and there's 300 of them, they shine their lights and all the Midianites actually die. They're all fighting each other. For the time the Assyrians come in and, and Sennacherib is, is the king and he comes and he sends the people against Israel and, and God says, again, stand still and see the salvation of God. 
And in one night, one angel of the Lord comes and kills 185,000 enemy soldiers. I mean, you think you can do that? <laughs> nope. And, and to read account after account of all of the things that, that, that God has done, God in, in preserving, even in the New Testament, we find what it took for Joseph and Mary to go down into Egypt, to be able to come back again. And, and through all of this time, God is protecting Jesus Christ. He is protecting his own son because his son didn't come to have his purposes thwarted. He came here for one purpose, and that was to die, and there was nothing that was going to get in his way. This is Joshua through Esther. Wisdom. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Proverbs is 31 books. It's a great way if you have uh, don't have any other way, you're not sure where to begin your devotions. Proverbs is a great way to read through the or through read through Proverbs throughout a month. Read one chapter a day. And then when you get to the end of that month, start all over again because there's a lot of stuff you're not going to understand the first time around. Or the second, or the third, or the fourth. Major prophets. Does anybody know why they are called major prophets and minor prophets? The amount, the amount that they write. The size of their message. Yeah, it has nothing to do with whether one was short and one was tall or not. The major prophets were simply Isaiah, Jeremiah, who also wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Interestingly, Daniel is only 12 chapters. And they were not considered major prophets in the Old Testament times. They weren't considered as somebody really special. It was, again, just because of the size of the message. And then the final 12 books are the minor prophets. And the minor prophets and the major prophets, actually, you get through and you find the message that God gives... And it's interesting, for example, in the book of Jonah, we have a people, Jonah goes, and he is told, go and give a message. What was the message? Repent. 40 days, you're all going to be dead. Now, if we went out and stood on the street corner and said, hey, 40 days, Cheyenne's going to be dead unless you repent, most people would just laugh at us. And everybody should laugh at us because that's not the message we've been given by God. But this is the message that Jonah has been given Show up to Nineveh, show up to the enemy of your people and tell them they're all going to be dead. Now, for you to understand, the Assyrians were pretty brutal people. I mean, these are the same people who, have, who would put Isaiah in a log and saw him in half. This is, this, this is the people of Assyria that we're talking about here. And so Jonah gets, he goes for a little boat ride and then he goes for a little whale ride or a great fish and he shows up and he's been his skin's been bleached I've got a very vivid imagination when it comes to Jonah and his skin's been bleached completely white and he goes to a people who are much darker skin he's probably got seaweed still hanging over his ears and he walks into the city of Nineveh and he goes repent and the people repent but you know, history actually shows Obadiah comes along and he gives an account of what actually would take place to Nineveh. And it happened 150 years later because the people of Nineveh forgot to pass on the message to their children. All it takes is one generation to get away from the truths of God. Number six. Above all else, Scripture is God's self or is, is God's self revelation. He is revealing to us all about Himself. 
And how does he do this? Again, some of this is duplicating what we have already spoken about. But A, he reveals creation, the heavens and the earth. He reveals the creation of mankind that has been made in God's image. In the image of God created he him. And he says, God says, he looked at man and he said, it is very good. We find the, the incarnation. This is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is God, very God, very man. The God man in the image of God, the very image of God comes down. And as John says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But the world doesn't want to see it. The world would rather stay in the darkness of their sin. He reveals himself through angels, angels who, who have come down and, and revealed. For example, in the book of Luke, we find angels. One angel comes down and he delivers the message. And then all of a sudden, with that one angel, there is the entire host of heaven who have come down to welcome the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, go to Jerusalem or go to Bethlehem to see this thing which has taken place. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. God used signs and wonders and miracles down through the ages. In fact, you can go all the way back to Moses, for example, or to, uh, to, 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 to Moses, and, and he goes out into the wilderness and he sees what? Burning bush. Burning bush. And when the bush is burning, he gets close to it, and a voice comes in and says, Take off your shoes, for you are on holy ground. Now, I, I'm going to agree with Mike here. I've been waiting for this section to, to, to state this. I was wondering who was going to say what they did earlier. And yet, when we look at Scripture and see that we in this human frail flesh that God came down to this earth and being in His very presence, think about this. Twelve disciples walked the road, slept on the side of the roads with Him, walked with Him every single day for three and a half years. They were in the very presence of God daily. And yet at the cross, they all abandoned Him. We, we would do the same thing had we been there. Visions, spoken words by the prophets, by Christ, the apostles, the prophets, all of these things. In fact, in Luke chapter 24, the, the, the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and, and some guy shows up out of the clear blue and he walks along with them. And, and they say, you know, or he says, why are you so sad? And they say, well... Well, haven't you? Have, are you a stranger here in Jerusalem? Don't you know what's been going on? And 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 the one that we worship, I mean, he he's gone now and he's dead. And Jesus is probably just shaking his head. You poor people. And he talks with them all along the way. And he gets to the end of the trip, and he's he's standing in the in the house with them. And he breaks bread and he disappears before their very eyes. And they say, "Oh man, did not our hearts burn within us? We we knew we should we saw the scriptures, we read the scriptures, we knew the scriptures." Written scripture, both of Old Testament and New Testament, every page of the scripture points to the one who would come, and the one who came, and the one who will come again. Listen to just a few more things as we try to wrap this up this evening because I wanted to finish getting through this section here and we're actually going to have probably two questions left for next week to tie into next week's lesson. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And only four of these do not involve a fallen world. 
out of these chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The first two cover before the fall, and the last two cover after the creation of the new heaven and new earth. There will be a day when you won't have to worry about earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. Those things are a result of the, flood, of, of, of the fall of man. There's coming a world where there will be no more thorns on roses. You know, I, I don't know what God has in mind and what he's going to create, but if he created a perfect world in the beginning, what do you think it's, it's going to look like the second time he recreates something? We may have things that we've never even dreamed of. What has always been known to man? How does merciful redemption and blessing come to mankind on page 48? God's will, his moral law, and his standard for men have always been made known. And through all of that, it's merciful redemption. That's If you want to sum it up in two words, that's what it is, merciful redemption. Blessing comes to mankind, to those who face their inability to keep God's standard, who recognize their sin, who confess their impotence to please God by their own works, and who ask Him for forgiveness and grace. This is the merciful call of the gospel message. We're not here to make people Baptists. I can't even make you a Christian. All I can do is share the message and God himself has to make you and I new believers in Christ Jesus. He has to make us a new creation. And, 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 and coming, to, coming to Christ doesn't make you one thing politically versus another. It doesn't make you financially rich or financially poor. It doesn't put you in a different elite status or some kind of this or that or the other. No, it takes you from the only one category that you could possibly be in and that is on the broad road to destruction, and it takes you to the other side and puts you in the narrow way to life. There is no other message for any person who has ever lived or who will ever live. The gospel call goes out to all who will but come and plead to him for mercy. This is where we get, and this is where we're going to leave it for tonight, but this is where we get the substitutionary sacrifice. Somebody has to make payment. And I want to close. We have used this before, but I want to show you this illustration once again. History repeats itself, and one of the things that we find in history is a similar or similarities in the law. And the law that we find today, for example, comes, of course, as you know, from the British system, British legal system. The British legal system was actually founded on the Roman system. And those who understood Roman law would have known exactly what we are talking about here. And God used that, and he has used the legal system which we are in right now, uh, to be able to make it possible for understand to understand what this legality is, this financial burden that we have on us, if you will, because it is it's a financial, it's a legal, it's a it's a sinful burden that each person has. And so, if you take one sin, and I think everybody could agree that we all sin at least one time a day. So, what is sin? Sin is anything that is not keeping God first in our life. That's the easiest way to put it. 
What one one any time if we if we think a wrong thought if we say a wrong word if we listen to something we're not supposed to if we watch something we're not supposed to if we have a crossword with our husband or with our wife or with our kids or whatever it may be it's all sin against God because sin is simply a separation from the holiness of God. Yes, ma'am. So my Catholic friend says a baby a baby isn't sinful. So that's actually a very good question. Here's what we have to ask ourselves. The ultimate question in, in, in that whole thing to sum it up is this. How many sins does it actually take to make one a sinner? None. In their whole lifetime. No. No. How, how many sins does it take to make you a sinner? One. No. You're born one. You're born. I mean, that's right. You're born a sinner. Yeah, which is what I told her. She yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's the very nature of God. For example, when a child gets to, to a year old, a year and a half old, you don't say, okay, Johnny, now, now we didn't do this with Hannah, for example. We didn't do this with my boys. My parents didn't do it with me. Their parents didn't do it with them all the way back to Adam and Eve. You, you know, listen, Johnny, we know that you've been living a perfect little life and you're a perfect little angel, but it's time for you to learn how to steal cookies. It's time for you to learn how to be nasty to your little sister. No, it's within our very natures that we are going to do those things. And so uh, by our very nature, again, if we sin just one time a day, times 365, times 70 years, you would have sinned 25,550 times. Now, that doesn't really become scary at those kind of numbers. But if you send 10 times a day, now we're at 255,000. If you send 100 times a day, now you're at 2.5 million sins in your lifetime. This is going against your account. There is a ledger that is being kept. And you're either in the Lamb's Book of Life or there's an account that you have to pay for. Now we have said this before. Every Sin, if you had only sinned one time in your entire life, Jesus Christ would still have had to have come and been the sacrifice. He would still have had to have atoned for that one sin. Otherwise, you would be separated forever from God. Every sin was a death sentence against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you and I were to go out and, and, and somebody were to commit murder against our family, what does what the law actually state when it comes to first-degree murder? What do we say is a life sentence? Does anybody know what the legal system says? 25 to life. 25 to life. Okay, now I know we've got a corrupt system a lot of times, but it's 25 to life. So if you took on average 25, multiply this, somebody get out your calculator... And if every one of these sins is worth one year, this is why we cannot teach, because number one, it is not biblical, but why we do not teach the doctrine of purgatory. That is a made-up doctrine that was made up around the 12th century. I'm sorry, 6-3? This is your life sentence. And every second that you and I would spend in hell, we are contributing to that exponentially. You can never escape hell. Because that life sentence 
has to be paid for. And you can either try to pay for this every single year, you can, you can try to live through this, or you can simply throw yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, I paid it in full. And trust Him. This is why salvation, the gift of God, the, 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 that, is, that is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. This is why we can give this message because the wonder of this message is you can't possibly hope to achieve in your lifetime or in all of eternity. You cannot hope to achieve what Jesus did by spending three hours on the cross or six hours on the cross on your behalf. Because when he was separated from God, God himself, God who cannot die, God who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God, is the same God who is the God who is hanging on the cross. And it is the only time in all of eternity past, present, day, and future, in which God himself would die. And he did so willingly. But because of his own power, he came back to life on the third day, thus accomplishing our salvation. No other religion offers that. No other God offers that. Only our God. You can go back and you can read all the gods of the Romans and the Greeks and the, the, of, of, of the Hindus and, and, and the Buddhists and even Islam. Uh, their, their gods are still in the grave. Their bones have rotted out a long time ago. I was reading, anybody ever seen a picture of uh, Lenin laying in his mausoleum? They actually say that what you actually see, 97% of that now is wax. But even if it wasn't, he's still gone. He's still spending eternity in hell. And he will never get out. And yet you and I, because the gift of God is eternal life and it is available today, that's why we call on him today. That's why we make our salvation sure. Lord willing, we will look at the last two questions as we get into the first Sunday. I believe it's the 4th of February should be our next class. And um, I pray that you've been encouraged in what we have looked at this evening, looking at the King of Kings. Are there any questions? And to answer your question directly, Sister Debbie, the simple answer, because God's the one that sets the rules. And God demands perfect holiness from our entire life. And somebody still has to give an account. Either we do, or God did it for us. Yeah? Yes, Gabe. Question on that that you were, were born in a sinner, right? Yes. How is that excluded to Jesus? Well, yeah, because he was not born of the seed of man. Okay. He, he, he was, because the seed comes from the man, and yet he was, his was an immaculate, or his was, his, his was a virgin birth. And so he was born by the seed that was placed into Mary by the Holy Spirit of God. 
um, and when he was born. This is why we look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, for example. Not only did Jesus Christ, not only did he not sin, which if he had committed even one sin, even one lustful thought, he could not have been the sacrifice. But Hebrews 4.15 shows us that he also was perfect in that he could not have sinned. And the reason he could not have sinned is because he did not have a sin nature. Perfect in every way. Good question. Thank you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for another class. I pray that this has been encouraging to each person's heart here this evening. May you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.